0: Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Welcome to Unlocking Innovation. Today's guest is Nick Allen. Nick has been at GE for over six years, where he now leads design and user experience for GE Healthcare's $6 billion global services business. His nonprofit work has included bringing technology to a small town in Haiti and redesigning infant warmers in a small town in India. He's also a collector and restorer of vintage computers. Welcome, Nick. Hey, glad to be here. Glad to have you. So uh, I mentioned earlier that you're, you're uh, one of the first user experience designers that, that we've had on Unlocking Innovation. So mm-hmm. I'm excited, obviously, being a user experience designer myself, just to talk to you a little bit about your background and kind of how you got from uh, where you initially started to where you are today. So can you talk a little bit about your career path um, and kind of the moments leading up to GE? Sure. So first and foremost, uh, probably the least qualified person to talk about user experience if you
1: look at my education and my early on experience. and uh, But I may be one of the most qualified people because of who I've studied under and the people that I've, uh, worked in the trenches with. And so, but yeah, I started, you know, my, believe it or not, I don't have a degree in, in design or necessarily in technology. My degree is in youth ministry, believe it or not. Um, and, uh, got married very young and had to work uh, very early and I worked in assembly lines, manufacturing lines, things like that. And I learned about lean thinking. And to me, lean thinking is really about design thinking in a lot of ways. And so, um, learned what it meant to be in the trenches and, and work 80, 90, hundred hour weeks. And want more, um, and to help people, and to have some empathy for others like myself. So, um, fast forward uh, 2005, I've always been curious about technology, loved technology, uh, loved innovation, and uh, on a whim just submitted an idea to IIT. They're here in Chicago. And uh, a week later, they fully funded my company. Wow. And so I became uh, overnight you know, CEO of a software company and had to learn very quickly how to do sales, marketing, and development. and um, That company lasted for three years. It was phenomenal. Uh, we had a great time. We made products overseas. We made software. Uh, we sold it. And, and then in 2008, really started working uh, out of Milwaukee's uh, headquarters for GE up in, uh, up in Milwaukee and uh, tried to help with productivity and, and some design and lean thinking, design thinking like that. Um, and they asked me to bring that entrepreneurial spirit. They're a big company. It's hard to move around. They want to run like a small company, and uh, so that's what I did, and um, been doing that ever since. Um, but like I said, I studied under under giants. So Doug Deets uh, is a good friend of mine. He helped really make the worst part of healthcare for children the best part of healthcare for children. And um, you know, he's worked with Tom Kelly at IDEO. He, he coaches at Stanford Design School. Uh, learned for years and years and years coaching with with Doug. Um, Sensei Nakao, who uh, has been doing lean thinking for decades and decades and decades, learned from him that there's a, uh, a simple way to design. And sometimes we get lost in the process. And I was in an event with him once at GE, and he yelled and he said, just throw away all your tools. You have missed the whole point. There's a simpler, more beautiful way to design. And so that's really how I ended up here. Um, but I think it's you know um, a love for people and wanting to serve and help people. And then a passion for art and technology and things like that.
0: And then that natural curious problem solver is kind of what brought me here today. I love that. So can you talk to me a little bit about the lean specifically? You said manufacturing. For those that don't know, you're referring to the lean manufacturing process that was was kind of um, bridled by Toyota. Um, what specifically about the, the lean process drew you to it? And what were the key lessons that you learned from that time during manufacturing? Yeah, um manufacturing's hard. You know, I would work six AM
1: till nine, ten PM, six, seven days a week, and people would just dump stuff on us and we would have to just assemble it and ship it. And um I remember they would just drop off servers by the hundreds and would have to manually load them over and over and over again. And there was a a, a great executive there who took me under his wing and taught me about lean. And it was really empowering the people who are missing their kids' birthdays and missing anniversaries because they're working so much, helping them, helping them have their perfect day at work. And, uh, so we started designing for ourselves and automating and writing software and scripts and fixtures where we could now load 42 servers in the same time it would take to load one and, uh, nobody was really doing it for us. We had to do it for ourselves and they would let us prototype and, and have fun. And, and, uh, we did amazing things. Um, and so when I came back to more the digital side with design thinking, I just remember those, those people who are in the trenches every day. We got we to care for them enough to actually make their days great. And so I, when I first, in 08, started with GE, uh, in the service division at least, um, I spent my first two, three, four months just going to our education center and sitting in with classes for field engineers, and just having lunch with them, and then visiting them in the field and watching them. And I would watch these situations where uh, a CT machine's broken and the doctor's breathing down their neck. We have patients waiting and they're trying to fix it and they're getting phone calls from their wife Jamie's recitals tonight are you going to make it i don't know the part comes and it's not working and now what do you do and I just remember thinking this isn't right we're putting these people through hell and uh, we got to do something better so that that lean thinking uh, to design thinking led you know the best way to help them is to just sit with them and listen and figure figure out you've been doing this for 30 years you don't love what we do to you in your perfect day how could we get it right and then let's design together
0: i love that you mentioned a couple design mentors. Were there specific lessons, uh, in addition to the lean messages that you received that really resonated? Uh, I know you mentioned simplicity. Mm -hmm. Were there any other ones that stuck out? Yeah. For, um, one thing I saw that they all had in common was,
1: um, they'd gotten so comfortable with failure. And by the way, I'm tremendous at failure. <laughs> I've been failing my <laughs> whole life, and I'm so good at it. Um, but that's how you learn. That's how kids, little kids learn is by failure, and they learn the scientific method, and they learn how to innovate naturally. And we kind of go away from that because we realize failure is not an option we have to execute. So I learned from these 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 mentors that they were so comfortable with failure. They learned how to fail in minutes or days instead of months or years. And then they they didn't believe anything was impossible. I remember the courage that I saw in Doug... Uh, You know, these kids are getting put in these big MRI CT machines and they're screaming, they're kicking, they're terrified, their parents are there with them. It's this hellacious experience. And that's bad if it's once, but what if this someone, the child's at the hospital for months or years, and this is part of their daily life and they're living in a nightmare. So the, so the parents, and he had this audacity to think, how could we take the worst part of someone's day and make it the best part of someone's day? What if they actually wanted to go in an MRI machine and nobody thought this was possible? He believed it could be possible. You could somehow take the worst part of someone's day and make it the best, and he did it. So I watched that over and over and over again. And so now I believe, and it's right in line with Edison and GE, that there's 10,000 ways it'll fail. We just have to find the one way, and that's all we have to do.
0: There's one way to solve any problem. Nothing's impossible, and that's the lessons I've been learning. So if you fast-forward the tape now, you're the lead design and user experience at GE Healthcare. What drew you to this specific role?
1: So the last couple of roles at GE are are ones that um, a very senior leader and I have really developed an alliance and we've created a special role for me to partake in. And and that's what happened here is they said, you know, Nick, you ran technology in the U.S. for a couple of years. You were able to run it like a startup company and have few people and do big things with it in a small team. Can you now go global and can you help not actually build the products, but can you help teach others to design and build products and have that exponential effect um, so th- that's what drew me there. Um, it's hard for me. I'm an inventor at home. Uh, I dabble in, you said, vintage computers. I've, I've worked on this amateur fusion reactor. I always have something. I'm, I'm a huge hardware technology nut. Um, and so I've been so used to inventing and creating things. And it's been hard for me to step back and say, I need to teach others how to design. And they can invent and change things. Uh, but I'm getting more comfortable with it. I'm seeing that, that effect uh, where you can have this army of people changing the culture. But the big thing was... They want a culture change. They want people to believe they can do the impossible, that they have courage, that they care enough about our people and our customers that they will attempt the impossible, and uh, that's what drew me there. So talk to me about how design has influenced the way GE innovates today. Um, at GE, we've been a company of acquisitions, so sometimes we'll wait and let the marketplace innovate, and then we'll just acquire the winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's dangerous because you don't learn all those lessons. Someone had to fight every day and learn. And all those pieces of wisdom and those relationships, you don't, you don't take advantage of. You just get the end product. And, um, and then we've been a great company of executing. And that's one thing that's been kind of ingrained in me is um, we need to become good executors, get a strategy and execute, make the quarter end. And so innovation, while it was in our blood early on, I hadn't seen it for years and years and years. And um, just recently, I feel like there's a resurgence. Now, there's been pockets. I mentioned one of my mentors, he's been doing this for, for, for a decade or longer, uh, a pocket of innovation. And so design thinking, you know, its essence, I'm, well, what the message I'm trying to spread is if we're going to design something for our customers, let's look at the two instances in life that we can look at where someone has to design something perfectly the first time. And if we can look at that, we can learn how to innovate. And those two instances, by the way, are designing someone's dream home, and designing someone's dream wedding. You have to design it perfectly the first time. You can't. You'll go out of business if you mess up the house, or you'll mess up the wedding. You won't get a second shot at another wedding. And so that's the process of innovation that uh, that I've been trying to bring to GE. And at its core, it's bringing those users in. And it's not even about the product. You know, we will work a lot with uh, nurses and people who run these machines, sonographers, they use ultrasound machines. It's not about here's our new machine when you think, let's help innovate and do a great industrial design. But it's what's your perfect day at the hospital as an ultrasound technician, as a sonographer? At the core, you got into healthcare because you love people. And as designers, we love people, you know? How can we make it where you want to go to work every day, where right. your patients want? to go into a room and have a strange ultrasound machine you know, scan them. Yeah. That could happen. And so I think that's the process of innovation we're trying to bring, is that love for the customer. With a small startup company, everyone's talking to customers every day. In a big corporation, the people at the top of the company aren't talking to customers anymore. And if they do, it might be inquiring some feedback, but it's not dreaming with them and designing with them. So how do we completely flatten that structure and have the people at the top with the people in the middle, with the people at the bottom, with the customers working every day and iterating every day and not worrying about an execution strategy of months or years, but just going day to day to day till we learn to make it better.
0: You talked a little bit about the team and the challenge of really helping teams understand what design is and, and how to apply that to specific challenges. So I'm curious around the project side, how do you define the success of a project or what would you define yep. as a, a successful project? Yep. So I learned early on, I talked about
1: failures with my entrepreneurial background. i would get a small team. We'd meet with customers. Uh, we would design something and, um, and we'd launch it and it would fail. And I kept realizing, realizing that great user experience, great UI, great design. If people don't use that product and use it every day, it doesn't mean anything. And so for me, it's less about the awards the product wins or the patents or the technology or the UX or the UI. It's that if there's people that have a problem that they desperately want solved, how many people can we solve that problem for? And do they use it every day? Do you use it every time they have the problem? And do they use it precisely as it was designed to use? And so that's how I'm going to measure success is that um, very, very high level. I'll stay more in the qualitative zone than the quantitative zone. Um, but if they have a problem and we truly solve it, and it's the best in the world they would go nowhere else. They'll use it every day and it solves their problem. And then I might look in the quantitative, you know,
0: how are the clicks and everything's like that. Right. So it's kind of, kind of adoption and usage essentially. Sure. Gotcha. So talk to me a little bit about the collaboration um, aspect at at GE and and how you collaborate to innovate. It's tough. Um,
1: We're not great collaborators, to be honest. We, we have deadlines we have to meet and uh, sometimes the deadline becomes the most important thing. And, uh, and then we as designers can come in and, and be these almost arrogant you know, people who make their lives miserable. Right. And we're trying to fight and advocate for the user. We have that passion for them, but then we lose the empathy for the other people who have to build it. And so it's tough. Um, you know, my team, I've really impressed on them that we need to be servants. We're there to help. Uh, we are there to fight for the customer. And um, that's not a great thing to do when you're collaborating, but how we will fight for the customer is say, what can we do to help? Can we bring on resources? And so I think for us, serving is how we collaborate. And then eventually, I think we'll earn the respect of the team. And they develop some empathy for us. And then they start to believe that things aren't impossible anymore. And they start to see things that they thought were impossible happen. And now they start to have hope and courage too. So it's this process. And eventually we collaborate. But the thing that, maybe there's one secret that brings us all together. We'll spend three days usually on a new product that we're launching, a new solution, and we'll bring customers in for those three days. We'll also bring in our teams that we collaborate with in. And for three days, we are having the most fun in the world, and we're designing some brand-new experience for a customer. At the end of that three days, those customers and that team, we feel like a family, and we feel like we have to do this. There's a personal uh, investment in it, And, and that is a
0: great shortcut to collaboration, and that's worked well. And essentially, it's bringing people together, having them work on a, a core challenge together, building that camaraderie, having that that team chemistry based on one specific challenge that everybody's tackling.
1: That's right. We don't talk about problems, believe it or not. We don't do... I'm in, I'm in UX. You think we do journey mapping and we talk about the problems. We look at analysis. We don't. We just bring in our customers and say, what's your perfect day with an ultrasound machine in a hospital? And then they start to tell this story and then the customer starts to show us what it might look like. And then we start to prototype with them. And by the end of those three days... It feels like it's everybody's idea. It feels like it's our own little startup company. And um, so it just naturally happens. Now there's times where some people just really can't embrace that kind of approach, and it's, it's far and few between. Uh, but usually that, that team is so on
0: fire, um, it's really hard to stop them. Absolutely. I know there's a lot of methodologies around UX. I've, you know, Hotel Tonight uses the five-star experience, and it, that perfect day um, sounds like a really great methodology for the business that might be struggling in looking at more of a blue sky thinking scenario in, in, is many times more rooted in practicality right. in many times it could be made up of, you know, engineers that are, um, focused on just solving what they can solve for at that moment. Yep. How do you deal with that as, as a design lead and how do you make sure that you kind of refocus everyone's energy? Yeah. It's going to sound harsh, but we, we
1: don't allow anyone to talk about what's feasible in these sessions. And sometimes I don't invite the technology teams either. <laughs> Smart move. <laughs> so sometimes they'll just keep bringing you back to what's feasible. And here's a story I'll tell you. Um, we launched this big $60 million CRM project. And by the way, 9 out of 10 digital transformations fail. So sometimes we felt like these big failures, and I was like, we're not the only ones. Everyone else is failing along with us. You know, It's a common thing. And um, it got really bad, uh, we were losing calls. It was things were getting escalated. Our customers were kind of joking. Are you trying to put yourselves out of business? It was just this huge digital transformation failure. And I got a call from one of the executives who said, Nick, when we fix these machines, parts break about half the time. We have to send someone to go fix a part. When they take the old part out and put the new part in, they have to document in our system. And it takes about an hour to document. It's crazy, right? Wow. It could take five minutes to fix the part, an hour, just to tell the machine you fixed yeah. the part. And so they said... You know, we got to do something about that. And so we we brought the teams together. We asked our users, what would be the perfect way of solving this problem? Well, the technology team knew it had to be an hour-long process. That's just how the technology was. That's what was feasible. It had to be this long, difficult, hierarchical type of problem. Well, the users, of course, said, I just want to scan the old part, spar code, the new car- part, barcode, and click Swap. And that's what we designed. And for four days straight, we battled. Technology kept fighting us. It's not possible. You're not listening to us. And we just had to just ignore them and say, you know what? We've tried it for four years. We're going to let the users just design it. And um, it got pretty heated. And we just kept ignoring what was technologically feasible and said, what would be the perfect way of doing this? The simplest, easiest way. And, of course, it's obvious. You look at it now and you say, scan the old part, scan the new part, click swap, that's, that's obviously what you want to do. But it had been ingrained in everyone's mind that, no, it has to be this 20-step process and take an hour. That was obvious before. So the fourth day, one of the engineers come in, comes in and says, I figured it out. I'm like, what do you mean you figured it out? He goes, we can't do it in the CRM. They're absolutely right. But we could do it outside the CRM through an API, and I can flatten it. He had figured, he's like, we'll be able to implement this next week. I get an email later that year. They had saved $15 million. In labor in that first year by letting the users just design their simple, perfect way of doing this. And uh, that's where sometimes we just ignore the technology. We, just, we, we don't know if it's feasible. First, we want to figure out where are we going? What's the perfect true north? And then we'll just work our way up there. We'll see what we can do today and tomorrow, but we got to have a long-term vision that we're going towards. We got to know what utopia is or else we're just going to be going all over the place. So we just ignore what's technologically feasible, and then
0: we figure out. I mean, that's what we're paid for, right? We
1: get paid sure. to solve problems and figure it out. There's always a way.
0: Right. I love that story, especially the fact that it was kind of rooted in the ROI uh, right. of that. I'm curious. A lot of our guests have really strong connections with the local startup community or universities. How do you view those types of partnerships, and, and what role do they play in to helping GE kind of mm-hmm. achieve achieve their goals. So it's interesting. Like I said
1: earlier, they really want us to operate like a startup. That's been my mission is to help us operate like a startup. What's interesting, though, is it's difficult to be GE sometimes because our goal is to help our customer in the hospital, to help help them have their perfect day. They get into healthcare because they love people. They want to serve people. And they spend way too much time with technology, with machines, screens, and it gets in the way. And that's what they hate about it. And so we will make that transparent. It's funny. If you look at people at GE, we have the same thing. We got in healthcare working for GE because we love people and want to help people, and then we spend too much time with technology and screens, and so we have that in common. Um, and so a lot of times at GE, though, we'll, we'll meet with our customers and we'll try to think holistically. What would be your perfect day at the hospital? And what we find out is that we are one out of 300 manufacturers. There's 299 other manufacturers besides GE, and they just want help across all 300 And we as GE, it's difficult. Now we're thinking, am I going to help my competitors get better, help us all get better together, Are we start integrating and sharing information? And so what happens is it's difficult for us to, to do those things. But I'll see a startup company kind of emerge, and they start to kind of bring all those 300 together. And so there's a unique opportunity. I wish that GE could be those people up front, those, four, you know, those those little startup companies that bring it up. But we'll see these other startup companies come in and say, hey, we have no allegiance to the 300. We'll help bring everyone together. And they can be pretty vital. It's scary because I think they could disrupt the market and take it over. And I wish GE could do that, but um, it's absolutely vital. Cause, and here's what's neat. When we look at a problem and say it's too big, we can't possibly make it work with our competitors they're fearless. They're in the hospital every day, learning every day. They're trying every day. We sit back and say they're never going to succeed. It's a million-dollar superconductor.
0: They'll never figure it out. And because they're there every day, they're figuring it out. Yeah. So you mentioned technology and really trying to make that disappear from your kind of day-to-day mm-hmm. and reduce that friction, especially with, with screen time, etc. But I'm curious the, on the emerging technology side, what what technologies do you think are going to have the biggest impact on healthcare and why. Sure. It's interesting. So
1: user experience, customer experience, digital experience, they're, they're all the same thing to me. And But with user experience, you traditionally think screens, beautiful UI, elegant, simple screens. And um, I don't think about screens. I think about almost like a surgeon. But they're doing their work, and the tools are just being handed to them right when they need them most. And they don't really look at a screen. They're not using a kiosk to get a scalpel. It's just being handed to them right when they need it. And so um, at GE, we, t- we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to create content and solve problems. And the problem is we have hundreds of thousands of different devices. You can imagine how many devices are in a hospital. And we build them all, and some of them are 20, 30 years old, and so we have this huge IB. So we start making content like service manuals and troubleshooting videos, and we need photos of parts, and we need descriptions, and it's just endless. It's infinite. And what I learned very quickly was there's a technology that we can use, and it's really in the deep learning, machine learning, AI, where we don't have to create content anymore because content is being created every day. We have thousands and thousands of engineers, and in the industry there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of engineers that are fixing these machines every day, and they're documenting what they did. And if you look at those records at a mass, you know, big data perspective, you find out I don't have to hand write recommendations. I can just look at the type of machine you're working on, the type of problem you have, and I can find out who fixed it yesterday and how they fixed it. Right, and, and you don't even need to look at a machine to do that or a screen. It can come to you and connect you automatically. When you call an 800 number, it routes you to that perfect person who just fixed it. And they're halfway around the world. That part is going to get ordered automatically and delivered for you and be there right when you need it most. So that's, the, that's what I'm seeing. The things that we do every day, and it's repeated thousands of times a day that we get frustrated with that we don't want to deal with, those problems will get solved transparently behind the scenes through big data, through AI, through machine learning. And um, what I think is going to happen is technology gets more sophisticated. It will become more transparent. People won't even realize that they're using it, which I think is pretty cool.
0: I love that. So it sounds like machine learning kind of mixed with that real-time availability of the data. Are mm-hmm. there any other specific areas of technology that you feel are going to be really disruptive as it relates to healthcare? Yeah, it's, it's almost the polar opposite. I talked about machine learning
1: making technology almost like magic. Things just start happening and you didn't even tell it to, it just does it for you based on what it knows about your situation. The complete opposite is really AR and VR. It's how do we augment and, and whisk the way to somewhere else that's completely different than reality. So I love that they're completely opposite, but here's, here's what's interesting. I was at a, a medical conference and I'm speaking about design and I'm, speaking, I'm telling the story about what we're doing in Haiti and that anything's impossible, nothing's impossible, we can do anything, we have to care enough about these people. And I'm listening to someone talk about these auto-injectors. Now, auto-injectors are these needles where people have to inject themselves with different medicines. And uh, adults hate it. Kids hate it. Um, If it's part of your everyday life, it it becomes a, a living hell to use these things. And I'm listening to this person talk about how they've spent they're really gloating is what they're doing. They're talking about how they spent millions of dollars in their lab looking at facial tracking and motion tracking and, and all this technology to get a 5% improvement on the angle of injection for accuracy. And I'm dying inside because I know my friend Doug Dietz at GE. He's taken this scary, hellacious experience of a CT and MRI machine and turned it into an adventure that kids want to go back to tomorrow. It's like Disneyland. It's unbelievable. And I'm thinking, we've got to do this for the needle. We've got to make needles something that kids... Aren't afraid of, and as a matter of fact, they actually look forward to. How crazy is that? And I share this with the the whole team of medical professionals, and they're like, Nick, you'll, it's a needle. It'll always be a needle. It's going to be painful. It's going to be bad. We just have to make it as accurate and quick as possible. And I refused to accept that. So I go back to GE, and I met with I met with my friend Doug and some of our our designers, and I said, We've got it. We've. It was now. A personal vendetta I had against this whole industry. We can do the impossible. We can make kids and adults' lives amazing. And he goes, Nick, you don't have to do it. I, I was thinking something similar, and, and I found this company, uh, this hospital out of Australia. I believe it's Monash University. And he sends me a link. And the link is this little girl, and she puts on um, one of those kind of Google cardboard, you know, with the, with the phone in it, this cheap little VR goggles. And what it is, is they had made an underwater adventure video game. And she can see her little kid hands in the video game and there's fish everywhere and she's chasing after them. And at one point, you know, it gets cold cause you're in the water. Well, that's when the alcohol is being rubbed in the arm. Right. And then at one point, these fish are kind of nibbling at her and swarming around her. Well, that's when the needle goes in and you're caring enough to take what's happening in real life and create an adventure that goes along with it. And you're putting enough care to say, you know what that needle prick, if we use a little bit of imagination, that could be fish biting at and nibbling at your arm. You just have to go a little bit farther than the needle and just give those kids, because they'll take anything and have an adventure. You've seen our kids. They can take you know sheets and make a fort, and they're out in a castle. Right. And so a little fish nibbling an arm in a VR is enough to turn that. And so this little girl, uh, the nurse comes in and said, most of the kids don't even realize they're getting the needle. And this little girl says, it's better than being at the movies. Wow. So I haven't brought this back to that conference yet. I will. And it's just proof that you can quite literally take anything and make it great. Now, I was at a conference uh, with FedEx a couple weeks ago, and I'm telling these stories, and a group of women started revolting. It was the most terrifying moment in my life. They start revolting and say, Nick, you've done it for kids. You have to do it for women now. There's a thing called a mammography machine where they take your breast and they clamp it and squeeze it, and it is horrible. They're like, who's going to design this amazing experience for women? And I said, well... It looks like you are. <laughs> You're have to have you come into a think tank or design and design the perfect machine for women. What if we designed an experience that women actually wanted to go to? That sounds crazy, but I've seen crazy things happen. So that's the technology, this, this AR, this VR, um, something even as simple as you've seen that car wrap. They put these, these stickers on cars. Mm-hmm. That's what they used to turn a CT machine and an MRI machine into an underwater adventure. Right. That's all it was. Yeah. And so these things that whisk us away into another world and we can play with and have imagination is, I think, the technology I'm looking forward to.
0: I love that. A little bit of technology, a little ingenuity. Yeah. A whole lot of imagination. Some storytelling, and here we go. Yeah. Fantastic. So talk to me a little bit about any specific advice that you think listeners and a lot of our listeners work for corporations they might be leading the innovation efforts at their their company is there any advice that you'd give them on really how to overcome some of the traditional challenges at a large corporation when it comes to innovation
1: yeah i get that a lot so when i speak at conferences well i normally meet larger companies and there could be hundreds of companies there and um most come to me and say, Nick, I'm the only person doing user experience. I'm the only person doing design and I feel alone. And there's a couple of companies like Intuit, they have like a whole army of people and it's awesome, you know, but a lot of people they are alone and they go, I can't even, I can't even bring customers in. I can't even talk to them. And, and I feel alone and I know exactly what they're talking about. Cause I've been there. And so I think, um, the biggest danger I see and the biggest barrier to that is companies no longer believe they can do the amazing. They believe that it's even hard to do the basics. And there's been some data. A professor looked at 20 to 30 years of data, and he found that if you just focus on the basics and you get the basics done right, consumers don't care. There's just a neutral response. If you go for the impossible, the wows, and even if you do a terrible job at it, you have an equal or better reaction by the marketplace. And so... That's what we're pushing for, which is to start to believe that you can do the impossible. And you have to be that first one to show them. So it took me five, six, seven years at GE, I think, to earn a reputation. To say, here's a person who's been serving us, he's bringing in customers one way or another, and we're seeing results. We never thought we could do the impossible, but it takes two, three, four, five, ten times for them to see... We listen to the customers, we attempt the impossible, we made a big uh, win, and and over and over again you finally earn that reputation and you finally get the right to do that. So it's this long, difficult journey um, to do that, and it's hard, and you kind of have to start from scratch. You could bring someone from the outside in and do it, but you have to earn the respect and the trust, and people have to believe that it's possible. So you really got to show them. You really have to show them. And with some companies, the good news is,
0: you could do this once or twice, and they're bought and sold. Other times, it takes years. Makes sense. So I've got a couple rapid-fire questions for you. So I'm just going to ask a question and present two options, sure. and you just um, without thinking too much about it, mm-hmm. just uh, come up with an answer. So, do you prefer to work in large teams or small teams? Small teams. What's the ideal size? I love working with a team of about a dozen. Dozen. Yep. Do you prefer to work with a team of generalists or specialists?
1: I'm going to have to say both. So you're going to have to listen uh, the response. So generalists, I love getting general problem solvers, and, and they work with customers and help solve the problems. And then I love the specialists who can come alongside those generalists and say, I'm going to help you with machine learning. I'm going to help you with radical design. I'm going to help you with industrial design, partnering them together. Do you prefer to work in person or remotely? Absolutely in person. I struggle remote. Um, a lot of people are very comfortable with remote. I'm the person in the office who walks up to you unannounced and wastes a lot of your time <laughs> talking to you, trying to drum up ideas. So definitely in person.
0: Yeah, most creatives are right. I think so. Just expect nothing less. So, do you prefer blue sky thinking or more focused problem solving? And again,
1: I'm going to cheat and say both. So, we do blue sky blue skies thinking. You know, what would be the perfect day as a um, you know as a patient in a hospital? But then you have to scope it super narrow and say what demographic, what hospital, what region, what problem. So blue sky thinking, but then a very specific type of person
0: and a very specific type of problem. So Nick, we know that you have a, a deep affinity for nonprofit work. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of your work in that space and, and why it's important to you?
1: Yeah, I think, I think anyone who goes to a country and sees people living these desperate lives is, is going to do it. And I just... I'm just lucky enough that I was actually there. So at age 18, I, I went to Haiti in 2001, and just saw—I uh, couldn't—I felt like I was in a time machine. Went back 2,000 years. Uh, you saw women on donkeys with with all this um, supplies on their heads, and, and and animals, and no roads, no water, kids with no clothes. It was un- unbelievable. And I was there with a the team for about two or three weeks. And over the last you know 15, 16 years, I've watched that team help with. Healthcare care and, and water and, and churches and schools and, and clothing. And about three years ago, I reached back out and I said, you know, Hades, the kids are getting water. They're getting some health care. What can we do next? And he said, you know, the schools are terrible, just terrible. Uh, kids will graduate high school and have never used a computer. Never done a chemistry experiment or biology experiment, and have never seen a photo of a chemistry experiment or biology experiment. And just like us, you know, we want we moved into neighborhoods, and the first thing we think about in the neighborhood is what's the school like. Mm-hmm. And so you might think it's ridiculous why well, would bring technology to a country like Haiti? But all the parents are going, I want my kids to have a world class education, so that when they get out of school, they can provide for their families. Right. Else we're feeding them and clothing them, and then it's this endless cycle. We ne- they never they never break out of poverty. And so, yeah, three years I reached out and he said, you know, we we need help with building kindergartens and school. And so I flew out there and really I I used design thinking. I met with 50, I brought a friend from Chase, who's a VP and an executive friend from GE because we were self-funding this. And so I tried to bring some wealthier guys with me and and team with me. And and we went down there and we interviewed 50 people, uh, principal, teachers, administrator, students, teachers, parents. And we just asked them what would be your perfect day at school very consistent with what I've been talking about earlier. And they just kept talking about what I remembered of like a library when I was a kid. I want to go to a place where there's books and I can get information and I can see videos and I can look at the internet. And that's what they really wanted. And as they're describing to this to me, and they're like, I want a playground and I want like, food. I don't have to sit and be hungry and in pain all day. Um, simple things like, that. I want a playground. None of them had a playground. It's a hard life. It's a hard life. there, and They're in these schools and they never learn to play or have fun. And so I'm leaving there, and I'm realizing I can't do this. I can't. I can't give them a world-class education. There's no way. I might be able to help with some things, but I can't do that. And that's when I got really convicted, because I just remember thinking, if I had to move down there for some crazy reason and bring my family with, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that I would give my kids a world-class education. I would figure out a way. I would get internet, I would get a computer, and I would homeschool my kids. I can guarantee you that. So then I thought, if I would do it for my own kids, why am I not doing it for these kids? And thats mm. I it was ashamed. I was ashamed to even think that. And so, mm. again, you, let's do the impossible. So we look at it and think, okay, we have no money. we got three or four of us. Uh, the government's not involved. No one's ever done this before, by the way. We went to a school in, in one of the major capital cities, and I saw a technology center. All these old computers that had been donated, none of them were powered on, and they had no Internet and if they had internet, it's enough for maybe one computer, not for a, a school of 300 or 500, right. right? So just sat dormant. So no one's ever solved this. What makes us think we could solve it? No one's done it. We have no electricity, no internet money. And so we just didn't accept that. We didn't accept it. And so we went down probably four or five, six times over the last two years and we solved the problems. Um, we figured out we have enough electricity that we could generate for one computer that's 300 watts. Well, then we'll have to build 50 devices and a server that used 300 watts and we did it we used tablets and uh, some little raspberry pis to the server and some we put some batteries in them to figure that out well we don't have internet or we don't have enough internet for 300 kids well let's bring all the content into the room without the internet so we did like this offline educational cloud and and then it was well the teachers have never used technology they can't teach it well we we'll use content that's so easy the kids can teach themselves mm. Love that. And so we started with a technology center that was kind of like a library. And it didn't, it really took about a year before people started using it. But I remember clearly I was there and I saw this little kid. I've watched him grow up from, from a newborn to now a toddler. And, um, I watched him outside and he's sitting, it was so picturesque. He was sitting there, no clothing, with just a bowl on his lap and eating food. It looked like out of a cover of national geographic, you know, like, like a kid you would see it, you know? And, uh, Later on that day, I go in the technology center, and I see him there with headphones and a tablet, and he's teaching himself English and how to count. And I couldn't believe this is the same kid, and this is the same day. And to top it, next to him was this teacher who um, had never really used a tablet before, and she's got a TED Talk open. I don't know how she found the TED Talk. I didn't realize we even had TED Talks in the server. (laughs) But she's learning about cybersecurity in a hut in a village in the middle of Haiti she's teaching herself about technology. I couldn't believe it. So we start with the technology center and then it was the the next level was, okay, we got three kindergartens, can we do it for that too? So we went back and we did three kindergartens and each kindergarten has a server and a projector and a, a laptop for the teacher. They can teach themselves. It's got all of Wikipedia on there. It's got all of Khan Academy on it can, and it's it's been unbelievable. So we want to go back. There's eight more classrooms in that one school, but there's 20 other schools. And some of these schools are really in a jungle. So this this school was in a rural area, but we were able to have a building and have rooms. Some of the other schools are really just a hut. And it's almost like you know, a hundred years ago they had schools where everyone would be in one room and K through twelve would be there. Right. It's almost like that. And so now we gotta figure out we don't have three hundred watts to work with, we have thirty watts to work with. How could we have a teacher with a little micro server and a little speaker? And a, and a tablet that's large, teach the whole class, almost like reading a story to them. And so those are the things we're looking at doing. We just don't accept that we can't give this to even the people in the most remote villages who have no electricity. We want to solve that problem, too.
0: I love that. What a powerful story. And thank you for all your hard work in that area. I think that the ingenuity behind that speaks volumes about your character and, and your uh, commitment to give back to, uh, to different communities in need. And um, here's what's interesting. You come back from
1: that trip and you go to your workplace. And everyone uh, who's listening might know this. And you sit through a meeting and you're in a billion-dollar organization with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And they start telling you, I can't do this. Right. And what goes through your mind is, don't tell me you can't do this. Right. You can do anything if you love these people enough. And um, so I talk about courage. I had no courage in doing that in Haiti. Anyone I think would have done that if they had been there with me. You can't help but not do it, but when you come back into an organization and you hear "I can't," you just don't care enough. You're, and here's the thing: innovators I've met that are extraordinarily passionate about technology. I had some time to, uh, to spend with Steve Wozniak, extraordinarily passionate about computers and technology. Most people don't get that passionate about ultrasound machines or about you know incubators. it's hard. I somehow to get passionate about building servers and educational content, which I'm not passionate about educational content, and now I feel like I'm a leader in it, right, because I had to be. But you care about the people enough, you start to get passionate about those problems. And so that's the thing. Those people in the room who said, we can't do this, haven't yet fallen in love with the people to the point where they're willing to do the impossible for
0: them. Absolutely. And really being more empathetic towards those those situations. It's interesting because you were as you were talking, I was thinking about, last week I I was thinking about my first interaction with the internet Hmm. because we take it for granted. I mean, we've had it for, I don't even know how long now, but remember being able to get access for the first time the internet asking yourself, wow, I can really just type in anything and search anything. And all of a sudden your mind opens up Hmm. and one page leads to another page and this page leads to a new discovery or some type of educational content. And, I, I can only imagine what that that's doing for that community. So hats off. So last question, which is the most important, hmm. what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? All right, it's that's a tough question. You know, I'll just
1: tell you an app that I thought was completely useless and and have become extraordinarily uh, useful in my life is is LinkedIn. So I used to wonder why pe- people ever used LinkedIn, and until about a year ago. And uh, just in the last month, I've met hundreds, if not thousands, of people, like-minded people. And I think this actually, this conversation started through LinkedIn, but people are reaching out and I'm having phone calls with them and I'm trying to figure out how I can help and serve. And uh, it's been really good in this kind of niche area of design and user experience. It's a little bit newer. Um, we're able to meet with all these people who have a shared passion.
0: Absolutely. And we're very thankful that we had a chance to meet you. Um Thank you for talking to us today. I think everything that you shared is extremely insightful, and I think we learned a lot. I am sure our listeners are going to appreciate um, all of the great uh, tips and, and information that you shared. Is there any specific area where listeners can follow you or keep in contact with what you are up to? Yeah, I just shared LinkedIn. So if you look for
1: Nick Allen at GE Healthcare or Nick Allen GEUX, you'll find me. And I always tell people this, and I really do mean it: is reach out to me anytime. I am pretty much twenty four seven. and uh, and absolutely reach in. I'll I'll schedule a phone call. 15, 30 minutes, we'll talk. I always want to see if I can help. Um, I'm usually at different conferences speaking. There's one actually next week in Chicago I'll be at. And uh, sometimes they give me free passes to bring people in. So I offer those away to people I meet. So you never know what could happen. Maybe that would be you, but uh, you reach out anytime.
0: Well, thank you again. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.